Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is titled The Problem of Democracy. And to talk about the problem of democracy, because it's a book, I have the author with me, Shadi. Welcome back, brother. Hi, Kushal. Thanks for having me. All right, man. So uh, obviously this is... Uh, this is going to be an interesting discussion. First of all, I, I just finished your book yesterday. I had to reread it because I, I wanted to go through a few things. First of all, uh, not that I did not enjoy your last book, but I thoroughly enjoyed this book. This was my personal favorite because this this book for me had certain fundamental questions which were more philosophical in nature. And for me, that yeah. fascinates me more. But before we get into my questions, so why did you decide to take this direction with this particular book so why why write this book now yeah yeah well so i think that this problem of democracy is the fundamental question of our political moment and it'll probably be the fundamental question for the rest of our lives and so i wanted to take that on directly and explain first of all what is the problem of democracy at least from my perspective and then what can we do about it and, you know, if I had to sort of sum up the problem, it would be, what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? Because obviously, as we see across the globe, uh, there's democracy is producing a lot of bad outcomes. And I tend to put the word bad in quotation marks, because part of the problem is that we as citizens no longer agree on what's a good outcome versus a bad outcome. And I think that if we don't find a way to get our heads around this question, then we're going to be in big trouble. So I think it is one of the most urgent, important questions of the current moment. And not just, you know, in the Middle East, not just in so-called developing regions, but even in the world's most advanced democracies. And um, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people who I think are making the kind of case that I make. And not to say that I'm a contrarian. People sometimes criticize me and say that, oh, Shadi, you're being contrarian, that sort of thing. Um, but it is true that I tend to diverge from a lot of the conventional wisdom when it comes to this specific set of questions. So I felt maybe it's time to kind of just put this argument out there and, and make the case. Okay, so the book is titled The Problem of Democracy. Now, in quotes, the key word here is the problem. Now, when first of all, what is the problem that you want to talk about? Uh, and let's start with this. When you talk about a problem, is it a feature or a bug? <laughs> Great question, because in some ways it's both. So the problem, the problem is that we like democracy in theory, but we don't love democracy in practice when we actually see what it means the practical implications on the ground that's where we start to see this gap because if you ask anyone for the most part do you think democracy is good um would you like to live in a democracy for the most part they'll probably say yeah democracy but then but then we see a problem where democracy plays out especially in young democracies that are experimenting with elections for the first time, including in the Middle East, and I draw particularly on a set of Middle Eastern cases, people see the results and they're like, this isn't what we were bargaining for. We don't love this. We thought that democracy was going to lead to 
better living standards, fighting poverty, uh, better employment options, economic growth. But the problem of democracy is that it doesn't necessarily lead to all these other good things. And not to be like a pessimist about it, although I suppose I am, good things don't necessarily go together. And I think that we've raised the idea of democracy and put it on this pedestal that we can no longer treat democracy as something real and imperfect. We want so much of it. So we're projecting a burden on democracy that it can't bear. And so we always get disappointed, um, especially after elections that don't go our way. And then people start to feel nostalgia for dictatorship, for strong men. They start to think, well, if we have a strong leader with an iron fist, that person can get things done and they don't have to worry about a pesky parliament and that sort of thing. So an, another way of looking at, at it is that democracy is fundamentally about uncertainty. That's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because you're not supposed to know who's going to win an election before they win an election. You should be a little bit frightened. You should not know what's going to happen in three months after the election. Uh, but obviously, that level of uncertainty is genuinely scary, especially when the stakes feel existential. So another you know, argument I make in the book is that we're entering a new era where the biggest divides in democracies, old and new, are divides around culture, identity, and religion. They are no longer primarily about economics. And this obviously is a shift from many of the Cold War era debates. And that creates a problem because it's easier to split the middle on economic issues because you do have, you know, you do have numbers. If you're talking about universal health care or marginal tax rates or deficit spending, it can be intense, but you still there are facts that you can work with and you can kind of have a reasonable discussion, at least in theory. But when you're talking about culture and identity, like what it means to be an American, what it means to be an Indian. Um, those are things that are very raw and personal for people. So how do you split the middle on your identity? That becomes more challenging, much more challenging. Now, it's something very interesting that you start, literally start your book with. You quote Scruton. You say, for Scruton, this ability or willingness to be unhappy, but still obliging when one's adversary wins an election is, quote, the precondition of democracy as we know it. Now, that's actually a very vital point, and I agree with you. And let me share some anecdotes that this is an area of concern. Why? Um, first of all, human beings are biased, so they only remember the follies of their political opponents, quote-unquote. And, and this is why I always tell people that watch other politics. It will show you your own blind spots. I realized how biased I was. And I have never hidden it. I'm an open BJP voter. I have never hidden that fact because I believe in transparency in it to the core. I realized my biases when I started following American politics because honestly, I could care less. I mean, I'm just putting it out there officially. <laughs> I could care less. So when I used to listen to the Democrats and the Republicans and when I realized when the Republicans won, recently when Trump won, right, there were talks about the dark side of democracy 
election uh, questioning the results or uh, what what was that woman who said i won i think it was stephanie or stacy abram or something i don't i don't remember the name it was some democratic uh, person in a local election in america who started questioning the ele- election results that i won technically or something of that sort and then yeah. you had the mother of all whiners uh, in donald trump you know who basically questioned everything and then i look at it in india too and every time narendra modi wins people come up with these oh the election machines are rigged now here's the funny bit the election commission of india has been consistently inviting people to test the machines every single time an election happens and they don't find anything wrong with them literally don't find anything wrong with them but i agree with you that the key prerequisite for a democracy is that while you whine and sulk that you lost you have to accept the process but if we are at a point that the process itself has been questioned what do we do with democracy then yeah so it, well it depend i mean in a lot of these cases the process is actually still free and fair the problem is you can always find something imperfect about how an election is conducted and we're having this debate right now in the US where there you know there are laws in some states that make it easier either easier or more difficult to vote so you can point at certain things and say well the process wasn't fair but you can also even look more broadly you can say that um the the mainstream left of center media is so dominant in america that that actually makes it an unfair playing field and i think a lot of these arguments are kind of absurd because there's no such thing as perfect fairness there's always going to be a media establishment that sets the contours of the national debate and 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 has more influence and in a sense people have to have to live with those imperfections because otherwise you're always going to question the election result um and i worry that people are going to so with our midterms here in the us coming up actually tomorrow um i think you're going to see a lot of this after the fact assessment of oh if only something x thing was different at this at this local or state level then our side would have won and yeah it's obviously quite dangerous now i think that you know one tough question and this is more applicable to countries like hungary and india and i'd be curious what what you think ushal that if you have a ruling party that is successful and they keep on winning like Fidesz in um Hungary with Viktor Orban or the BJP and they start to use their state power to target some journalists or to create a uh, a sense of fear where not everyone feels they can fully participate or um a certain group has more difficulty getting to the polls whatever it might be then you start to have questions that are raised that doesn't justify disavowing the result because as you said in india for all you know my criticisms and other people's criticisms of the bjp and how they treat the muslim minority 
hey, I mean, you know, the elections are are not rigged. There is no evidence of systematic fraud. So I think the question is, are there are there instances of fraud that are non-systematic or systematic? And that and that's what, you know, so could the results have been otherwise, basically? And if the answer is no, then you have to say, well, um, Victor Orban came to power uh, through a free and fair election. But then what the context around the election itself, the lead up to the election, that's where I think you have major concerns. See, Does that make sense? See, here's the thing. I can only answer for India. I cannot answer for Hungary because I don't follow that part, yeah. that part of the world. So I'll leave that aside. But in India, I'll tell you how you know the elections are fair. Even if you look at community-wise voting percentages, right? For the BJP to come up with a Machiavellian uh, conspiracy to, to stop the Muslims, the proof of the pudding is always in the eating. And that, in this case, is the voting percentages community-wise, religion-wise. Guess who has the highest voting percentage in India, Muslims. Muslims vote the highest in India. They go out and they vote their asses off. <laughs> they vote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have one of the highest voting percentages in India on average. And they tend to vote more towards one direction on average. What has changed in India is this is, see, this is an you know, this is fascinating and, and that's not the aim of our podcast. And I'll, I'll I'll make sure that we don't make it about India. We'll we'll focus on the book. But the scholarship shadi on India is so pathetic. It is so bad. And uh, I would recommend you to, you know, read this guy, Salvatore Babunis. He is a professor in Sydney. He was an American. He's now living in Sydney for 14 years. And he started looking at the data points. And when he analyzed, he's like, this is a sampling error, basically. What happens is a lot of American think tanks rely on certain people in India. But it's very simple. If there was a systematic attempt to not let certain people vote in India, it should show in the voting percentages. It's, it's very simple. If there was an attempt, otherwise what? The only thing that has changed in India is the Hindu vote. Because... There is a fundamental misunderstanding about what Hindutva is in India. Hindutva was an attempt, basically what? Hindutva is an answer to two, two, three problems in India. One was Islamism. The other was Western and Christian imperialism. And the third was Hindu casteism. And it was dealing with these three problems and it created a Hindu consolidation. What people don't, I did not realize that journalists in the West were so bad at math. It, this is basic math that when you have Hindus as 76% of the population, even if I don't count the Jains and the Buddhists and the Sikhs as Hindus, while the Indian constitution literally considers them Hindus, as in the definition of a Hindu in India is a negative definition, as in those who are not uh, monotheistic or Parsi, pretty much. Yeah. That's the definition of a Hindu in India legally. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual definitions. Now, if there is a consolidation in that area, even if 100% of Muslims vote and the other side votes for someone else, they're not going to win electorally. That's just a fact of life. And what was happening was in India, caste politics was the norm. People used to vote on the basis of their caste. And Hindutva solved the caste problem. They basically said, casteism should die. 
And Hindus were like, yeah, we agree. It's a bad thing. It should die. And they started voting as Hindus first, their caste later. And this has resulted in basically the Hindutva movement rising. And people don't want to accept it. And it's basically... I don't know how to say it, but people have lost their collective minds and their analysis basically have taken a backseat. So when I, and this has been my lesson of my four months journey in the United States of America. And, and I say this with full responsibility that people basically don't understand India. And which is why I loved your book is because from your book, I realized people don't understand the Middle East. They don't yeah. understand what happens. And what you do, and this is why I'm going to bring you to the book now, is I could relate to your book so much. This is because whatever you have written in the book in relation to Islam and the Middle East politics is exactly what I faced in the West when it comes to India and Hindu politics. It is literally the same. And that's why you won't believe it. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a public intellectual in India. His name is Harsh Madhusudan Gupta. And we have this habit, Harsh and I. You know, I always talk to him whenever I read a book. And we have this habit. If he's reading something, he shares excerpts from the book to me. And I share excerpts from a book. And I was literally sharing your excerpts with Harsh just two days ago and today too on the podcast. And I was like, this is what is happening in the West. Good that Shadi has written this book. So now let's talk about how the West doesn't understand A, Islam, Islamism, and Middle Eastern politics. So now I hand it over to you. Okay. Um, well, it's a long list of things Western <laughs> observers and policymakers don't understand about the Middle East. But to be fair, the Middle East is complicated. And in particular, it has to do with the role of religion in public life. And, you know, as you might recall from my my previous book, um, Islamic Exceptionalism, I, I, I did argue that Islam is exceptional in certain ways, that it's fundamentally different in that it plays an outsized role in politics. It's been resistant to secularization. It's been vigorous in the sense that it's refused to be tamed. Um, Islam is powerful in the public sphere. Now, I think that makes it difficult for secular elites in the West to really understand political dynamics because you can't understand political dynamics in religiously conservative societies without taking religion seriously. And this became a big issue during the Arab Spring when you had a lot of American observers who got caught up in the euphoria, they saw these West Westernized liberal English speaking Twitter users, the people in the square. And they're like, Oh, we can see some of ourselves in them. We can relate to them. Oh, great. Americans always like to see themselves in other people or, or vice versa. And then something changed the revolutionaries were not able to organize effectively in the political sphere, as one might expect. I mean, first of all, young, young people obviously aren't going to be as good as as good in organizing political parties as they are in protesting. It's just a different skill set. Right. So which parties end up doing very well in elections and then coming to power after they won consecutive elections? Islamist parties, in other words, groups that believe that Islam or Islamic law should play a central role in politics, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or in Nahda in Tunisia, so on and so forth. So this creates 
a democratic dilemma. And the Obama administration, after initially being enthusiastic about the Arab Spring, starts to sour on the Arab Spring. I mean, Obama was intellectually open to Islamist parties. I mean, he was, out of all the presidents we've had, he's the one who who was most familiar with the Middle East and Muslim-majority contexts. I mean, he spent, he grew up uh, for at least part of his life in Indonesia. I mean, his... Um, his dad was Muslim, his stepdad was Muslim, so on and so forth. But even he, because he was someone who believed in the arc of history, he had a progressive conception of the way things should move. So when he saw that democracy wasn't leading to good things in the Middle East, he started to get a little bit exhausted and, and annoyed and irritated. And you really, if you look at Obama's statements when he talks about tribalism in the Middle East. This is a term that he uses when he talks about the religious passions of the Middle East during the Arab Spring. You can almost sense that he's like, why can't these Arabs get their act together? Why can't they just be normal people who vote on normal things? Why are they so concerned with these big existential questions around um, Islam and the state and the meaning of the nation state and all these big questions? And he actually he actually has these so-called jokes and they're actually I mean, it's not um, it was there in um, the big um, the big article about the Obama doctrine uh, by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. Some some listeners might recall where Obama o Obama is known to joke like, why can't I just have a bunch of Scandinavian leaders he, he and he sees that as the model of efficient technocrats who don't get bogged down in the cultural tribalism. So I think that this is a real blind spot when we look at especially liberal elites in America, the ones who dominate mainstream institutions, who obviously have a lot of influence in the policymaking process. They just, they see the Middle East as a problem because it doesn't follow a particular expectation of the way the world should be and specifically islamist parties like the muslim brotherhood it's understandable you know we as americans are not going to be comfortable with a party like that but that's why we have to make an extra effort and say look the muslim brotherhood we might disagree with them fundamentally on all of these issues we might think that they're bad we might think that they're dangerous but it's not for us as Americans to decide on behalf of a particular electorate whether we like their choice or not. And oftentimes when people say, well, Chatty, what to you is at the core of the democratic idea? This might be a slight, slightly hyperbolic, but I think this is how I would describe it. Democracy is fundamentally about the right to make the wrong choice. So we, you know, we as as, you know, good, well-educated liberals, we always assume that if people just get enough education, enough information, they'll vote the right way. But the thing is, people people still don't vote the right way, no matter what you do, because there is no longer a right way. And and um, and it's their right 
to vote for a right wing party, whether it's in the Middle East or the rise of the far right in Italy, we, as we saw in the recent elections or in Sweden as well. Um, a party with uh, neo-Nazi origins actually is the largest party in the governing coalition now. So we see this throughout. We see this throughout the world. Extend that also to the BJP. As much as I dislike the BJP, if they win fair and square, which they have done, then there is no other choice but to respect that outcome. And if you don't like it, what do you do? You try to persuade more voters the next time around. This is what people seem to forget about democracy. You are capable of winning. You just have to convince people. So it's almost as if you have now... um, a lot of elites who don't even want to do the basic business of persuasion. They just assume that people should agree with them, but clearly the people don't agree for a reason. And you have to, you have to actually get down on the ground, talk to people and actually have a persuasive program that appeals to who they are and who they want to be. And I mean, I, I've been open about this. I mean, I, I was frightened sick when Trump won in 2016. And I've actually, you know, I've said this publicly before, and I I think it's okay for men to cry every now and then. But I did actually cry. I was talking, (laughs) don't judge me, Kushal. (laughs) But, um, uh, you know, the, the night of when, you know, the results were coming in and it was clear that Hillary had lost, I talked to my brother on the phone. And what we were most concerned about was, our family, our parents specifically. My mom wears the headscarf. And Trump had had such intense anti-Muslim rhetoric that I was worried. Like, how will my mom feel when she's walking around the next day in this new era where Donald Trump is our president? Donald Trump had said things like, quote unquote, I think Islam hates us. Doesn't really make much sense. How can a religion hate you? But um, he had also talked about a registry for for Muslims, crazy things. Obviously, he didn't do those things when he was in power. But I was very, very scared. But you know what? At the end of the day, Trump won fair and square. And I had no choice as as an American as an American citizen except to acknowledge that and to move on and to think about the next steps. What else can you do? So this is the fundamental challenge of democracy. And, you know, just to, just last thing on the Middle East comparison here, my relatives in Egypt, so I'm originally Egyptian, born, raised here in the U.S., my relatives in Egypt, when they saw the Muslim Brotherhood winning, not once, but the second time, the third time, they started freaking out. And they said, Shadi, if this is what democracy means, we're not on board. You come, you Americans, and you preach to us about democracy, but you're not the ones who have to live with the consequences of democracy. We do. And you know what? Now that we've seen who actually wins, we're not so sure about this idea. So the challenge I always put to people, imagine the worst case scenario, the party that you hate the most, the party that you feel is most personally threatening to you, your family, your community. Think about what will happen if they win freely and fairly, no foul play, and then try to think how you can come to terms with that and how you can fight better through the ballot box next time around instead of complaining and saying, woe is me.
Fair enough. Now, in this book, you try to talk about it. I don't know. I've not read it anywhere else. So I've read it for the first time in your book. I don't know. So you just called something called democratic minimalism, right? If I if I remember the word correctly. Yes. And and you start with a distinction between liberalism and democracy itself. Now, can you explain that uh, to everyone? What do you mean by these two things? Okay. So the first thing is that when we talk about liberalism and democracy, I always say we're talking about small L liberalism and small D democracy, because here in the US, we we sometimes use the word liberals to talk about people who are left of center, like Democrats, you know, members of the Democratic Party. Here, I'm talking about the classical liberal tradition. And I think, unfortunately, in the West, we've tended to conflate two things. When people say the word democracy, what they really mean is liberal democracy. But that's a problem because these two things are not the same. And we have to be careful about that conflation. It is the case that liberalism and democracy have gone hand in hand for part of our history as Americans. Certainly, if we think about the end of history in the 1990s and the, de you know, the decline of the Soviet Union, it seemed like liberalism and democracy were part of a package deal. And that's where the world was going. But if we look historically, these two concepts have actually been in tension. And sometimes they've even been in conflict. And even if you look at the American founding fathers, they weren't big fans of democracy. And um, I'll just give you two examples. I mean, John Adams for, uh, said, quote unquote, there was never a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. That's intense. Or also James Madison in the Federalist Papers, and Madison is the father of our Constitution. He said, democracies are, quote unquote, as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Strong rhetoric. So what are they getting at here? Democracy was a little bit risky for them because democracy was about mass politics. They were afraid of the mob and they wanted to constrain the majority by introducing checks and balances and also introducing undemocratic institutions like the Senate. And there was a time that the Senate wasn't even elected uh, through popular election. So and the Electoral College is another example of an American institution that we have that is not about the direct popular vote. All of that is no accident. So what is the classical liberal tradition? What does it emphasize? It, em it emphasizes individual freedoms, personal autonomy, um, minority rights, um, gender equality, the, the um, primacy of reason over revelation, the supremacy of the individual over the collective. It implies a restricted role for religion. I mean, liberal societies do allow religion to be expressed, including obviously in America, which does have a tradition of public religiosity. But there is a limit to how far you can go with that. So all of these things are part of the classical liberal tradition. So the Bill of Rights, for example, for people who are familiar with that part of the, the American Constitution, that captures the liberal tradition quite eloquently, for example. When we talk about democracy, we're talking about something a little bit different. We're talking about um, 
alternation of power through regular elections. We're talking about responsiveness to the electorate. We're talking about um, channeling the will of the majority through regular elections. We're talking about popular sovereignty, um, so on and so forth. So these are diff- these are different sets of things, and sometimes they come into tension. And now what we're finding is that after the peak of the 1990s, where everyone thought that everything was perfect and that we had reached the end of history, where liberal democracy was the final endpoint for humankind, we're seeing again how liberalism and democracy are diverging. And so this is at the heart of the idea that I lay out in the book called democratic minimalism. And what I advocate here is to decouple, at least to some extent, small L liberalism from small D democracy. We have to stop conflating these ideas and we have to acknowledge that sometimes more democracy means less liberalism. And in the Middle East, we saw very clear examples of this because the Muslim Brotherhood is illiberal. They don't believe in the classical liberal t- tradition. Of course they don't. They're Islamists. So by definition, they don't, they're not liberals, right? So um, and, and here we're talking about Islamist parties that weren't 100% on board with minority rights in the full sense that we have in the West. Gender equality, they don't support that. Sometimes they want to prioritize the collective over the individual, so on and so forth. So, so that is, so what I'm, what I'm calling for here is that if we want democracy to succeed, we have to come to terms with the fact that liberals are not always going to win. And sometimes they're not going to win at all. Because in religiously conservative societies, there aren't enough liberals. There are, however, a lot of religiously conservative people who want Islam to play a prominent role in public life. So again, we don't have to like that, but we have to be aware of the reality and we have to accommodate ourselves to that reality in some way. Um, so that's that's um, the kind of the, the rough sketch. There's obviously some more details we can talk about, like what, you know, and I make a distinction between political liberalism and cultural liberalism. But yeah, that's the basic idea. All right. So I want to touch upon something very specific that you have quoted in the book. And I want to read that is because that's one of the things I'm going to read two quotes, but I'm going to start with this one. Um, I don't know where which page it is on page 60 of the Kindle version. But you say the You know, the reality of religious diversity in the Middle East and the regular bouts of religious conflict that result from an inability to peacefully process that reality means that secular political frameworks are no longer best equipped to manage religious diversity. Secular frameworks start from the premise that public religiosity, particularly when it has political implications for rulers, which it usually does, is a problem to be solved. In theory, this invites coercion. In practice, it has. An insistence on secularism as the only legitimate framework for society and politics relies on a religious, quote, other. That other, capital O, other, is painted as illegitimate and a threat to order. Now, I'll tell you why I have picked this quote. 
I don't think so. You intended to do it, but you actually have made the case for a civilizational state through this court. And now here's the thing: a civilizational state doesn't necessarily have to be opposed to secularism. In the case, like I'll give you the case of India. Now, people often don't realize how much of an influence. And what I again, another thing that I enjoyed in this book was. your open acceptance of societal realities that in muslim majority societies don't expect people to dislike islam it's the stupid yeah. i mean it is the stupidest assumption on planet earth to assume that in a muslim majority society people are going to dislike islam there is a reason why they are muslim <laughs> they like islam <laughs> there is a reason for that so, so why i'll tell you is that now I'll give you the example of America. So, this time I was, um, I had a very interesting journey there, and I, you know, I was talking to a libertarian. See how people and their ideas crumble. So I was with an American libertarian with our common friend uh, Razib Khan. Razib had arranged a dinner yeah. in Austin, and I was having a conversation. A very nice guy. So he was saying, you know, I don't like government interference. Blah 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 blah. I know the libertarian stand because I'm a lapsed libertarian. I'm sympathetic to libertarianism while I'm not an absolute libertarian. So I told him, here's the case in India. India has different civil laws for different religions. A Muslim man can officially have four wives. Muslims in India are allowed legally nikah halala. Now I don't need to explain to you, Shadi, what nikah halala is. Muslims, until a few months or a couple of years ago, legally were allowed instant triple talaq in India. And I just kept on using these examples. Then I explained the Christian divorce law, how it is next to impossible for a Christian woman in India to get a divorce because of Christianity, and. and it it was fascinating for him me to see his libertarianism crumble because uh, it, it crumbled because i was like if you are a libertarian to your core you will say these laws are fine you will support these laws while you may not like them he could not he could not because hmm. he he accepted the moral superiority of a uniform civil code a uniform hmm. civil yeah. law for all communities and by the way even i am like that like it's an abomination what we have in india people don't realize that the most liberals don't know how 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 convoluted indian liberalism is but now i get to your question when when you say some people just don't like some things is why don't they like like in america no another question i ask americans all the time your currency note says in god we trust I have a very simple question to everybody: Which God is that? It's definitely not Ram. It's definitely not Allah. Uh, is it uh, the Mormon God? <laughs> I don't think so. It is. It's a very specific God that the American currency note talks about. I know it got added in the 1950s. I'm aware of that. But the point is, it's not been removed. Yep, it has not been removed. Also, America also has has unique restrictions based on state uh, state legalities, where you know secular people don't like the idea that dogs can be eaten. The Chinese do, right? Uh, the American eagle is illegal. Why I'm using these things is that 
every society is shaped by a narrative right so the focus of your book is islamic societies so indirectly what you have done in my view and i want to hear your views but i i had to explain this otherwise you would not have gotten what i was saying is that you have basically said that until or unless you do not realize every society has an essence you will go on making these mistakes in analyzing them so do you think you have made the actual case for a civilizational state <laughs> okay you're going to get me in trouble i guess okay okay let's dive into this well first of all just like a, a little um a little wrinkle on the in god we trust thing i i personally as an american muslim see that god as as mine because you know in monotheism you know i many of us would see christianity judaism and islam as as sharing the same god so i think that's a little bit more inclusive and there are very few things that i can think about in the american context that single me out as a muslim but that's because i'm a monotheist obviously if i was hindu or buddhist i wouldn't be able to relate to in god we yeah. trust in in quite the same way um okay civilizational states and i guess here you're referring to india under the bjp <laughs> so i mean look um yes yes um societies have an essence the essence can change of course so not i want to make yeah. clear none of this is static and i agree with that yeah cultures are dynamic but i think it's reasonable to expect that in a hindu majority state where more people are connecting to their hindu roots and want to emphasize that more in their own lives they are going to gravitate towards a party like uh, the bjp um that said i mean there has to be a balance because well first of all i can understand why muslims living under the bjp might not love the idea of a civilizational state that doesn't mean that a civilizational state is illegitimate but i think we also have to listen to people who have major concerns with this because if it's a civilizational state and they don't share the civilizational narrative they're not going to feel fully even if they are full citizens legally they may feel that they aren't seen as full citizens but also to be fair there are countries like France that also i think have a similar issue because you have a very strong sec aggressive secular narrative that is part of the french conception of the self muslim minorities in france sometimes feel like they don't belong that they can't belong like if a woman who wears the headscarf has to take it off when she goes into a public a public building or then she has to make a choice between her french identity and her muslim identity right so my preference is to have so let's have civilizational states but let's do what we can to accommodate minorities giving them some degree of freedom and autonomy to pursue their own religious directions similar in, in maybe in some ways to what you said that when it comes to divorce law and other issues around family law um various countries like india also like israel have sharia i mean you know, local Sharia courts that can adjudicate some of these family law issues, you know, so uh, 
yeah, I mean, I don't love that. I don't love the term civilizational state. So I'm struggling a little bit here. It just it does make me a little bit nervous. Um, but that's yeah, my it, job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that the danger comes when. Um, so when I talk about democratic minimalism for democracy to stay minimal in this sense, there still have to be basic protection. So there still has to be some degree of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, the right to organize, the right to form political parties, the right to criticize the government, the right to communicate your preferences to voters. Because if you don't have those rights, then voters don't have a true choice. They're not being exposed to different options at the ballot box. And so my only my my biggest concern with a country like India going forward is, let's say the BJP continues to, as I mentioned earlier, briefly target journalists who are critical of the BJP. And therefore, the opposition doesn't have as many opportunities to criticize the government. That hasn't happened yet, but I think that's what someone like me would be keeping an eye on going forward. And it's also what I'm worried about when it comes to a country like Hungary, where the private media, there aren't as many private um, uh, you know, media outlets that can be critical of the government. There's been media consolidation. Um, most of the largest media outlets are tied to the state or the ruling party in certain ways. So the right to oppose is fundamental. Um, unfortunately, in the case of India, as far as I can tell, the opposition party sucks and is an absolute joke. And they're like this dynasty that can't get their act together. That's a different story. And you can't blame the BJP for how much the opposition sucks. So here's the thing I'll tell you. This is my second observation. And again, I'm going to read a quote. See, the thing is that I, why I take so much time to explain things to you is because I believe uh, in the principle of charity that I I completely want to be be accurate when I express myself. For the record, I'm a secularist. I'm a secularist. I, I actually want a secular state, but I, I don't want the Indian version of secularism. It's horrible. I like the French and the American version far better, but mm. the Indian secularism sucks if you ask me. But at the same time, now I want to read another excerpt from your book and, and, and I'll explain myself. So give me some time. So on page 75, you have written modernity creates a paradox because it longs for sameness precisely as that sameness drifts out of reach. As the philosopher John Gray argues, quote, ancient societies were more hospitable to differences than ours. This is partly because the idea of human equality was weak or absent. Modernity begins not with the recognition of difference, but with a demand for uniformity, unquote. Much of modern political theory and moral philosophy developed in relatively homogenous Western states, which means that the act of difference and what to do about it was and remains under-theorized. Political pluralism requires a conscious effort to preserve difference. And if political and religious pluralism are intertwined, then a freer marketplace of ideas would not necessarily lead Muslims in a given country to become more, quote, enlightened, what liberals might prefer or more conservative, which is what Islamists would prefer. Now, here's my, uh, now here's my explanation. Now, 
I'm going to call this and, and, and I hope you understand where I'm coming from. This is a uniquely monotheistic problem. And I'll explain why. Hmm. It's, it's a uniquely monotheistic problem. And this is why, and, and I'm going to answer your question too. And I'll put, put a question back to you too. I, I, this is why I love this book, by the way. I loved your Thank book you. because it, 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 it gave me so many things to think about. So people don't realize that a fundamentalist of a, to use Sam Harris, a fundamentalist of a religion is as good as the fundamentals of a religion. What, the failure of Western analysis on India or Western analysis in general is its refusal to acknowledge the effect of monotheism on them. Hmm. Monotheism, by, and this is not me making a value judgment on monotheism. People can like monotheism. It's their life. It's their choice. I don't care about that. Monotheism by nature is exclusivist. There is a God. He's the only true God. There is a prophet. He is the real prophet. There are other prophets, but that monotheist's prophet is the real prophet. That creates a very top-down way and a very collectivist. It's very funny. You know how the Westerners are obsessed with individualism. Their religion is the most collective religion I have come across in my life. It's actually the salvation is collective. The sin is collective. Everything is collective. So they had to come up with a system. It's a very different way. Now we spin around and look at it from a non-monotheistic way. Indians naturally took up to democracy. And I'll, I will be even more blunt when I say non-monotheists in India. There is a reason for that. Because non-monotheistic religions fundamentally are completely the opposite of monotheism. <laughs> they, hmm. they, 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 they are a very bottom-up way. To use a word of an Indian-American thinker, Raji Malhotra, he, he actually pointed this problem out very well. At a fundamental level, monotheism and secularism that is practiced in the West or liberalism that is practiced in the West in many ways was actually a pagan solution, if you ask me, to, to a monotheistic society. It is the difference anxiety to use the word of you know, there is an anxiety that monotheism has with difference. And it tries to purge that difference through its exclusivism, through its homogenization. Non-monotheistic societies don't have a problem with difference. I can assure you, India does not have a problem with difference because the number of languages in India is not reducing, increasing. <laughs> the, the number of diversity uh, in India is not reducing. It still remains the same. When I study these problems, what fascinates me at its core is why don't any why doesn't anybody in the West actually realize that this is a monotheistic problem? Is my question to you? Wow. Okay. Fascinating. Um, okay. Well, I a couple things on so salvation and sin are individual at least so i don't know what you mean by um the collectivization of sin aren't but... isn't everybody eternally damned isn't not so when when the original sin was committed isn't all of mankind eternally damned it's a collective mankind it is not a single thing it's all of mankind being eternally it... damned yeah, yeah. That, so that would be more in the Christian tradition. I mean, in Islam, we don't have the same conception of individual, sorry, of original sin. So in Islam, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but ultimately to be saved, even if you're a Christian, you are responsible. I mean, well, actually you're not, I mean, Jesus, Jesus saves. So I suppose in that sense, but it is fundamentally the individual that no one has to carry the sins yeah, of I, I a father or a brother or something like that. I once asked this to a serious Christian pastor in India. And I said, what if I'm a criminal all my life? And before dying, I say, I believe in Jesus. He said, you'll go to heaven. I'm just putting it on record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but just to say that, and, and I'll just to speak about the religion I, I that I am and that I know the, I know the most, um, you know, I, I do think there's a strong individual element in Islam because ultimately, um, you know, you face God in the day of judgment. You're accounted for your sins and your good deeds, you know, so on and so forth. But anyway, just a little side point. But I would I would say that if you look at Christian empires and Islamic empires, they are multi-ethnic. They are multi-religious. They are not obsessed with sameness. They don't have a uniform legal code in part because in the pre-modern era, law wasn't seen as something that a state takes and implements. Law was decentralized because the state was relatively weak. It's only in the modern era that we see this idea of law being found in a legal manual or a set of statutes and you follow each one and you implement it. And we forget the way, you know, it was, well, we forget because we didn't live under it, but the pre-modern approach to law is quite different. And then of course, in the Ottoman Caliphate, you have the millet system, which in some ways is similar to what you mentioned in India, that each community um, has its own, um, ways of approaching inheritance, divorce, marriage, and so on. So, you know, but you're right that there is something about monotheism that is uncompromising on the specific point of monotheism. So the the diversity that you had in Islamic caliphates did not extend to polytheism. So, you know, if we're so if we're talking about the millet system, we're talking about Christians and Jews and different denominations we're not necessarily talking about pagans. Um, so it is a very interesting point that you make that in at least some ways, non-monotheistic societies are not so concerned about a particular conception of God. And as I understand the Hindu tradition, the, the concept of God is actually very multifaceted, perhaps even somewhat confusing even to Hindus themselves, where some people will talk about like, oh, it's just it's basically one God, but many, many different manifestations. But other, so you even have a kind of spectrum of people who lean more towards um, a single God with manifestations reading versus a more fully polytheistic. But correct me if I'm wrong on that. But that's my general that's my general sense. So, I mean, that's that. I So that that's great um, in the sense that if that does accommodate more difference that is definitely a positive thing, but there is something about the modern state itself, irrespective of anything else that wants to control and dominate. And this is why when I'm looking at how do we live with deep difference, because we as citizens aren't going to agree on, on the foundational questions. We can never go back to a time of consensus 
we as Americans are never going to have a bipartisan tradition where we all share the same. No, it's done. So the question then is how do we accommodate ourselves to this new reality? And I think that the only way in the long term is to stop being obsessed with the state, because if the state is so powerful, if the state is trying to centralize its authority, that means every election is going to feel so existential. Why? Because whoever wins captures the levers of power and they can then use state power to transform the culture, transform society. And so then how do we distribute power away from the state? And I don't know to what extent that applies to how the BJP is looking at centralization of state power and all of that. But regardless of Hinduism or Christianity, every state is tempted to centralize and to bureaucratize and to accumulate more power. And if we want to live in a truly diverse society where people can actually live in line with their own religious commitments, then we have to be worried about the state. So I think one thing that come, I hope comes through in my book, I'm someone who has become increasingly suspicious of the modern nation state because it raises the stakes of politics too much. Mm-hmm. Now, just to answer that question, for the record, the BJP has actually increased the share, the percentage of the share of all states since it has come to power. So states actually, irrespective of whether it's BJP controlled or, or anybody else controlled, now have more piece, uh, you know, more part, uh, uh, more of a chunk of the revenue than they have. Now it's a separate issue that BJP controls most states in India, yeah. but it has actually decentralized, decentralized the system far more since it has come to power in many ways and centralized the system in some ways which uh, let's say we got the GST now, the general sales tax, right? Or like it, uh, something similar to Canada. So now we have a centralized tax system. Before that, we had the VAT, which was the value-added tax. Now, yep. the value-added tax was literally a decentralized tax where every state had their own tax. So in some places, we have centralized, but in a lot of places, the BJP actually has decentralized. I'll give you another example on abortion. Now, people in... now. You know, the, the right wing image, first of all, BJP is more left than the average leftist in uh, uh, in in America in terms of policymaking. BJP is way more left than the Democratic Party. They're actually socialists, if you ask me. If, if well, I thought, I thought Mo, I, but I thought Modi was he tended to be seen as more free market oriented. He's pro business. I mean, look, I. I <laughs> it's, it, it, that's the thing right that's the thing i mean if i was to you know i always play and and i trashadi you know i mean i'm not here to get you or anything my my intention i i like you i i, I love talking to you <laughs> because you. you're an open-minded guy you're an open-minded guy believe me the commentary on india in the west is so horrifying that like i can't even i don't know where i start it's is my tragedy like BJP has many pro problems. If anybody listens to my podcast, they'll be like, is this guy a BJP voter? He criticizes them so much. I criticize BJP from a free market perspective. I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? Why are you so socialist? Like, let's say on abortion, BJP actually increased the abortion limit from hmm. X number of weeks to more. They did not reduce it. They increased it. 
So, you know, the classical right-wing points that are made in the United, the only difference in the BJP and the Congress, like I literally play this game with my friends in the West who are policymakers. All I do is I copy-paste policy decisions of the Congress and the BJP, and I just remove the, the tag in the beginning. And trust me, they cannot make out who's who. Because they just don't know when they look at the policy. Because the policies are all the same. It's, it's, Indian politics is so messed up. And, and Indian intellectuals as a class, and I say this with full responsibility, have actually betrayed India. Hmm. They have betrayed India with such shoddy, horrible scholarship that you know scholars in the West would be ashamed of Indian intellectuals if they actually started looking at their work. Like if I did a meta-analysis, of, of the kind of reportage. It's not like New York Times sends a journalist to India, right? They just look for an Indian to write and they just pick a left-wing person. And that left-wing person hates BJP with a passion. Now, there are genuine criticisms of the BJP. Don't get me wrong. There are genuinely bigoted statements made by some office bearers. But the criticisms that are made against the BJP are not fair. But I still want to talk about one more thing over here which is, uh, I think, a very important aspect of your book in a larger meta perspective, when we look at all this before I take a few viewers' questions too, is that democracy itself, I don't think so democracy at a, at a conceptual level is a problem. And what I find very fascinating, again, is that in my view, you have made two cases now. One is mm. for a civilizational state, and you've actually made the case for left-wing libertarianism. Um, okay. Left-wing libertarian. Sorry. Can you just say a little bit more? Libertarianism, libertarianism also comes from the left and the right. Like libertarianism many times comes from the left wing. Also, people don't realize this. People have this image of libertarianism being just a right wing thing. Like I, I, I'm surprised how many people don't realize that there are left wing libertarians in America yeah. too. Who, who don't want it because when you talk about so what has happened in my view this is what I experienced because I met so many people in North America what has happened is the old gods have collapsed Shadi in the west they have just collapsed Christianity is pretty much dead America is literally the last dinosaur that has a little bit of Christianity left in it when old religions fall Old conflicts fall, but the nature of conflict doesn't fall. People have just made politics their religion in America. I could literally, so my last visit to America was eight and a half years ago. I don't know why I did not go. I used to go every two years, but then something happened. I never go. I could not recognize America this time when I went after eight and a half years. I just did not know the country. I was like, who are these people? Why are they so politically tribal? I did not see so much political tribalism in the America I went eight and a half years ago. It literally has happened that old religions have collapsed and people needed some religion. It, it's actually funny that religion, the religious condition is as as, as, uh, as the base level default line that humanity could ever come. And, and they've made politics their religion. And that's why I think a, a lot of thinkers like you have started doubting democracy at times is because you see the dark side as in democracy when politics when politics is your religion the party that goes to power tries to make most of it because it's yeah. it's religious zealotry and i think 
maybe we need to get the old old guards back there <laughs> yeah well okay but i don't see that as a fault of democracy i i see it as a fault of political tribalism democracy democracy is about regulating conflict between different parties who compete in elections and people should i mean one thing i really want my book to convey is how um if conflict is the problem if tribalism is the problem we have two solutions one is for one side to defeat the other and claim a final victory through coercion or pressure or whatever the other option is that we acknowledge that there will be a constant rotation sometimes one party will win sometimes the other party will win maybe not in india because the other party is so weak but in the case of the us you know when people say um oh a permanent democratic majority that's what we're building as america becomes more diverse with more people of color democrats will have a stranglehold on the you know they used to say that obviously now we know it's no longer true but you as a citizen should never want a permanent majority for your own party in a democracy because a democracy without alternation of power is not really a democracy a democracy where one party is just unable to perpetually win ever win is not a democracy um so you know in that's in that sense democracy still offers an answer but we have to rethink democracy in a particular way to see it as a path to resolving these tribal conflicts because what else can we have because if we can't force the other side to agree with us then we have to find a way to live with them the 74 million trump voters i don't like that they voted for trump but i have to live with them and i have to acknowledge that they may win the election in 2024 there's a real chance that trump will win again and we as we as left of center liberals can't just freak out and say it was illegitimate he's evil trump voters were miseducated they were victims of russian interference you're already seeing all the excuses coming up so we can't have that but the try but on your broader point yes um what we have in america now is religion without religion we are still a nation of believers we're intense americans always want to believe in something um but now we no longer have christianity as the focal point for that belief and this is why i say in the book secularism is not the answer because we thought that secularism would lead to more reasonable people and rationality and people wouldn't be aroused by their religious passions but what actually happened is that people just transferred their passions towards something else they still filled the gap of meaning and belonging but they they found it with hyper wokeness they found it with ultranationalism or white nativism or whatever else it might be so be careful what you wish for because you might get it and what you get isn't always better mhm and i think uh, you have put it to summarize i think a crisis of meaning cannot be solved through political tribalism uh, if is what i'm trying to get yes. from what you have said Yes, a crisis of meaning it it has to be resolved through non-political things. I mean, so you know, I I increasingly say that 
life is elsewhere. I don't think politics should be anyone's primary vocation in a democracy. There are some countries where politics is a matter of life and death, but in a democracy like ours in America, it literally is not a matter of life or death for the overwhelming majority of people. There are some exceptions, obviously, when it comes to, you know, the most destitute in our society. But if you're watching this right now on your laptop, politics is not a matter of life and death for you. <laughs> so so in that sense, there are other ways to live your life. There's some family, community, your local church or mosque. Find, uh, you know, find a reading group, find things that are interesting. You know, I don't know. It's not for me to tell people how to do that. But politics should not be the answer. And I think you're exactly right what you notice. And it's fascinating that you say that you've noticed this difference in the span of eight and a half years. People are like, I don't, I live in DC. So there's a lot of like well-educated elites. But if you spend time around highly educated elites in DC or New York, people are losing their minds. They are just like, People are freaking out about the midterms, which again are tomorrow. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Americans on Twitter, if anyone who's watching this right now, follow some of your American friends, especially if they're on the left, they are going like people are losing their minds. That is not healthy. It's not even a president. Midterms are important, but it isn't the end of the world. So also when people say this is the most important election of your lifetime, no, it should. First of all, it isn't because they say that every single election. They said that in 2016. They said that in 2020. Now, you can't have three most important elections of your lifetime. Like one has to be more important than the other. But also, you shouldn't want it to be the most important election of your lifetime. That's not a healthy way to view elections. Yeah. And and I think that's not a healthy way to live your life. Like if look, look at us for an example. We've had a civil conversation where you clearly have no, you're, you're not a Modi fan, but you still come and speak with me. And this is not your first time. This is yeah. the third time you're on my podcast. And and I thought that was what life, life was all about, that we talk to each other. And, you know, if I meet you in Washington, which I should have, and I suck at, I did not do that this time, but I'm going to meet you next year. But, you know, we should be able to have a conversation and I don't know why people have changed. And the real attempt that I'm trying to make through this podcast is to have these meaningful conversations. And, and it, these have to be global conversations. One of the biggest things that I, one of my biggest critiques of America has always been that America thinks that the world revolves around them. It doesn't. Yep. And your book, if anything, actually shows the mirror to America that look, you clearly don't get it. <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around you. There are people who don't care. You can disagree with them. but the, And you know, it stems from, I always say this, America has a savior complex. They want to save people. And again, it stems directly from their Christian background. Because Christianity is about saving people. And, and they don't realize that they go around trying to save the world uh, either through their secular <laughs> way or through their Christian way. And it's annoying. People get annoyed. People, it doesn't mean I'm a moral relativist. I'm actually a moral objectivist and I would love the world to have a moral objective standard. But having said that, now let me take a few questions because uh, we have a live audience, Ray, and, uh, and 
you know we should we should take their questions now so yeah. so let's start uh, from the beginning so obama has been a lot of uh, uh, you know your book has been focused on a lot on obama and and maybe that was my one criticism of your book very little on trump literally like a few pages that's all in the end i mean that's the only criticism i could come up with you you hmm. focused a lot on obama <laughs> i mean it's it's a minor criticism i'm not i'm not making it a big deal or anything but i just thought why didn't he focus all the, and you're going to get a lot of brickbats because you actually uh, you actually gave trump a thumbs up on some things in your book uh, and you don't like trump <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you uh so so I I want to ask this question first. So how was Obama well versed in Middle Eastern politics is the question because I guess you had mentioned this in the beginning. He made the biggest blunder by arming rebel groups in Libya, Syria that turned out to be ISIS. Okay. Um well, uh, for uh, just to clarify something about trump um i there since i was focusing on the arab spring that is that that is the key moment for the middle east i mean after after obama leaves the political scene and trump becomes president in 2017 the arab spring is definitively over everything's you know most everything is depressing except tunisia but then even tunisia ends up having a coup a couple of years later. So I felt that that was the period to analyze. And also I like to call my own side to account more. People criticize me a lot for this. They say, Shadi, you criticize Democrats more than you criticize Republicans. You criticize Obama more than you criticize Trump. The thing with Trump, I had no expectations that he would be good or positive in any way. So there's no sense of betrayal. There's no sense of confusion. Yes, he's bad. Of course, he told us he was going to be bad. He told us he would be, you know, incompetent, not know how to manage a government, whatever it might be. That wasn't a surprise. And I don't want to be one of those people who just adds to the chorus of complaining about Trump and Republic. First of all, people still talk about Trump as if he's the president. Like, you know, there is this kind of preoccupation with him. And I think that can distort our political analysis i had such high expectations for barack obama so i mean i don't want to say that it's like being a scorned lover but you do feel a greater sense of betrayal if your partner cheats on you after you love them not that i've necessarily been in that situation but i can like you know so that that happened trump i was never in a you know we were never or people like me weren't in a relationship with trump so he couldn't cheat on us if the analogy makes sense now for the for the question on um from from the list, from your listener okay the re- when i say obama knew more about the middle east keep in mind it's a low bar because there really hadn't been presidents who had spent much time in the middle east or known muslims all that much or been or socialized in the arab community Uh, Obama had in Chicago, and there's actually this famous picture of him with Edward Said, the the famous um, Arab American um, author, the author of Orientalism specifically. And again, I mean, Obama's heritage meant that he was more open to different ways of living. 
And also the fact that he studied international relations in undergrad. I don't know if he was like, not to overstate how much, how important that is, but he was someone who cared about the world, paid attention to the world, whatever. Now, just because you've studied the Middle East a little bit more or lived in a Muslim majority country for a couple of years, that doesn't mean you're going to make good decisions. And I'm actually critical of Obama in the opposite way as, as your, your commenter. I actually was very much in favor of directly intervening against the Assad regime in Syria. My criticism of Obama is that he didn't intervene enough. He did not target the Assad regime directly uh, through mil military means. He armed rebel groups. In some ways, that was the worst of both worlds because it did something without doing enough and everyone was disappointed. Obama always used to do this. He would come up with two opposite viewpoints and pick the midpoint. Now, that might seem like um, a reasonable way of approaching life, but actually in politics, it can backfire. Because sometimes you have to pick a side and follow through. And that's how you have the impact that you're looking for. But if you support rebel groups, but you don't give them enough support to win, in some ways, you're just prolonging the conflict without actually addressing the, the fundamental issue, which was that there was a dictator in charge, Bashar al-Assad, who was using brutality and ma massacring his own people. Uh, you know, on Libya, I was actually a supporter of the NATO intervention in Libya. My criticism was that Obama forgot about Libya after he got rid of Gaddafi. It was like, oh, he's gone and now we can move to other things. If you're going to intervene, you should have a plan. Um, there's more to say on that. I know that's a controversial position. But um, but anyway, that's briefly how I view the Obama administration on, on some of those issues. Mm-hmm. All right. So somebody has asked this question. I think it's uh, got to do with how does one deal with a activism in democracy, whether left wing or right wing? So uh, I think that what what they mean to say is uh, the, this particular viewer is worried about the wokeness in America. And I think it's becoming all encompassing in American life. So how yeah. does one deal with it? Yeah, well, join the club. It's tough. I mean, I mean, <laughs> look, I'm not going to cry about it. You know, I still, you know, but it could be worse. I mean, thank God I don't live under an authoritarian regime. America is still a free democracy where people can say and do what they want. However, I do think there is increasing pressure for people to toe the line on some of these woke issues. If you're at a university, if you're at a a mainstream left of center institution, the wokeness is not an exaggeration. It's there. And a lot of institutions, I don't know if these exist in India or in other parts of the world as much, but in most universities now you have something called um, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. It's a department in the university that basically monitors whether people have the right opinions on diversity and inclusion. Now, you might say, what could possibly be wrong with diversity and inclusion? But they tend to have a very narrow sense of what that means. They're concerned with ethnic and racial diversity, not with ideological diversity. So you might have all these different colors and races in a particular university department, but they all believe in the same thing. 
So what does that actually give you? What is the benefit if you just have, um, you know, so that, that is, uh, I'll just, another example is, this is actually crazy, but um, there's now pressure. So I, I do teach a course at a university and there is a growing move towards something called um, citational justice, where your syllabus is supposed to have enough women and people of color or even your footnotes in a particular paper. I actually did submit a paper for peer review once and it came back. One of the criticisms was there weren't enough women in the footnotes. So, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm no, sorry. I mean, this, the, is just, this is just stupid. Yeah, yeah but this is, I, this is, and look, I, it's not really, my, I don't, it's not something I like to focus on or talk about publicly, but I think on gender, identity there's there is also a lot of crazy ideas that are becoming mainstreamed where you know six or seven year olds are being asked what their pronoun like they're talking about pronouns with their classmates this is actually not a joke i actually was talking to a professor um at an american university uh last week actually and she actually told me this story of how her son who was six came home recently and asked her mom am i a he or a she why because two of his friends who are six or seven are i, I can't even believe this so I'm, I'm even like i feel weird talking about it but this is actually what she said i'm not exaggerating two two of her son's friends at this age are non-binary I don't even understand how that's possible. But anyway, this is the kind of <laughs> this is the kind of thing that is starting and that's why public education is becoming such a contentious issue because people are coming up with these crazy ideas that are so outside of the mainstream. I still vote for the Democratic Party, but if I had kids who went who had to like experience these sorts of things, I would actually have to like think about my conscience here and what I was comfortable supporting or not supporting, but this is why Democrats are losing. You know, I've written elsewhere that there's a Brown backlash that Hispanics, Arabs, Muslims, black men, there, there is a real loss of minority support because the democratic party is supporting extreme views on race, gender, crime, abortion. And these are things that these communities that tend to be more socially conservative are really concerned about. So that's sort of where we're at. Like the, the most we can do is to fight back and to speak out. And I actually have a bit of Brown privilege here because I'm not a white man. I can say a lot more than a white person can say, I hate that's the case. You should be able to say whatever you want. I shouldn't be able to say more because of, you know, who I am, but I get a pass it's harder to cancel me because I'm not white. That's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, it's not only that. You, you, you know, on the oppression card, you're you're brown and you're Muslim. You get more points. So yeah. <laughs> if you're a brown and a Hindu in America, you would have been oh cancelled. You're white adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. Being brown is not enough. You have to be brown and Muslim. That's lucky it. me. But. Uh, 
Yeah. So by the way, you're right on the the point because I just I yeah day before yesterday somebody had sent the Rasmussen uh, reports and uh, yeah, uh, I think 33% of black voters and uh, 44% of other minorities would uh, vote Republican if the election was held today. The, I'm yeah. quoting the Rasmussen report exactly verbatim. So yeah, I'm not surprised about what you're saying. The the trends are changing. So one last question before I wrap it up, uh, and I'm going to mix it uh, together. So we did talk about this, but and you do uh, allude to uh, in your book also when you talk about there have to be certain standards, even though we talk about democratic minimalism, we have to try to adhere to certain universal standards which lead to human flourishing you did not use the words human flourishing but i i'm basically summarizing your your yeah. intent by saying that there have to be laws no matter as much as we try to be minimalist in our dem- democracy we have to focus on you know um human flourishing in that case you know when you see stuff like personal laws or the hijab protests in iran where or or many others uh, you know issues like uh, i've said civil laws in india like how do we deal with it is 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 uh, is the question uh, one of the viewers has asked like if you Shadi, both you and I love democracy. We we love the system. We believe we we truly believe in the in the the goodness of human beings as well as the eff- efficiency of democracy as a system. But the point is when when we clearly see I don't and I don't use Islam as a word in India. Islamism, at least I can say, has actually broken the back of liberalism. It's clear, and I mean, just look at the irony that lip. You know, there there was this famous video where there was this white woman or man I don't know telling a couple of Iranians how this is patriarchy, that is patriarchy. We have to look at this, and that. they're like, "What are you talking about? I mean, the hijab uh, or the burqa for us is 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 not cool, and we don't support it." So, so how do we deal with these things? Yeah. It's a great question because it gets to specific cases in religiously conservative societies. So let's say, for example, that in a Muslim-majority democracy, you had an elected parliament that decided to pass a law restricting alcohol consumption or blasphemy laws that restricted to what extent you could insult the Prophet Muhammad or the Quran, for example. That would not violate democratic minimalism because it deals with ends rather than means. I'm concerned about process. That's what you need for democracy to flourish. The right for people to vote, to oppose, to organize, to vote. Now, what they decide to do with the vote is their choice. And if you have a majority of people who say, we want to have restrictions on alcohol, and I use that example just because it comes up a lot, then I think that is something that has to be respected. Again, we don't have to like a law for it to be legitimately passed or restricting the right to an abortion. I'm pro-choice, but I totally understand that in some states in America where people are vigorously anti-abortion, they want to restrict the time period where abortion is permissible. 
I don't have to like that, but if that is the will of the people as expressed through their elected representatives, I have to respect that. Inheritance laws. What if you have inheritance or divorce laws that make it more difficult for women to get a divorce? I don't like that. But if that's what, if that is what the majority votes for, you accept it, then you live to fight another day and you try to, again, persuade your fellow citizens to think differently about that particular issue. And democracy at its best inspires us, it should at least inspire us, to talk to our fellow citizens and to try to bring them to your side. You might fail, but you have to listen to them. You have to understand their grievances. You have to understand their civilizational narrative. So if I talk to a Trump supporter and I want to bring him to vote for Democrats, I have to take seriously why he's angry. Why he maybe wants to restrict immigration. That doesn't make him a bigot. You should be allowed to oppose immigration without being called a racist or a bigot. So my whole thing is avoid calling people or thinking that people are deplorables. Because if enough quote-unquote deplorables vote, they could pass laws that are illiberal. Um, and that, again, is where the tension comes between liberalism and democracy and how we have to come to terms with that reality. But don't you think there is a fundamental problem here? Because for this idea, for what the idea you have mentioned over here to function, it needs a everybody having a constant right to vote, which I understand is a pre, but it also needs free speech. Now, what if I actually don't like the concept of blasphemy? Now, if I, and I don't like certain religious concepts now, if I'm not even allowed to do it, how am I going to beat that idea? You see what I'm trying to say? If the law itself restricts me from criticizing. And on the question of alcohol, it's very interesting that five states in India actually have an alcohol ban. Mizoram, Gujarat, Bihar, Nagaland, and Lakshadweep. It's a small, tiny island, Lakshadweep. So they, they have alcohol bans in India. Uh, they have beef bans in different states in India. Some states allow consumption of beef too in India. So it, it, it is a decentralized issue. And... Uh, you know the 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 members of the states do so so i i do i do understand what you're saying but yeah the fundamental problem is actually in many ways your book again highlights the popperian paradox yes how much do we tolerate the intolerance? intolerance well just on that point i mean um okay so if there's a law that restricts your ability to insult profits that doesn't affect you voting for another party or organizing for another party. So as long as there is a right to recourse and reversal, and that's not taken away, then the, the minimalist democracy is it's still there. You know, now, if let's say a law was passed that prohibited public gatherings of more than 100 people, that would be different. Then you would start to move where you're undermining the, the foundation of democracy, because if you can't gather with large people, how can a political party have a rally to get people to vote for them? So I think, and you know, if you look at European countries, many of them do have hate speech laws. So every country has, has some restriction on speech. They just disagree on where to draw the line. So on Holocaust denial, for example, or explicit support for Nazism in Germany. That's because they have 
a civilizational concern where now to be a good German is to atone for the past and to move away from that tragic heritage. So that is part of now what it means to be German and it's legislated. So I think in, in all these different situations, there is no such thing as absolute free speech. Personally, I like the American system where we have a First Amendment, where it's very difficult to restrict any speech. But most countries do not have something comparable to the First Amendment in that regard. No country has it. Only America has it. And uh, for the record, India has a blasphemy law too. (laughs) (laughs) India has a blasphemy law too. But yeah. I understand what you're saying. And this is why this is the one thing I admire about America is their concept of freedom. I think the world could learn. I think it's an objectively better system. But uh, well, you know, uh, uh, that is for another day. But uh, before we wrap it up, Shadi, any any last words that you want to say? No, I just want to say uh, thanks so much, Kushal, for, for having me. I you know always enjoy coming on the podcast. And I think what you're trying to do, you know, talking about deep difference, it's a great thing. And I hope more people do it. So thank and, you. And, yeah, and I and I say this with all honesty. I love reading your books because you come agreement or disagreement. You know, I always say this. There are two words in Hindi, and I'll translate it. I'll try my best. You know, they, they say matbhed is fine. Matbhed is difference of opinion. Manbhed is not good. Manbhed means you have enmity in your heart, mm. a, a soul dupe enmity. I I want to live in a world where. I am fine with differences. Look, we live in a house. I always say this to even members of my podcast or, or listeners. I say, look, you don't agree with your parents on everything. You don't agree with your spouses or your siblings on everything. How the hell do you expect a large society to agree on everything? When you are comfortable with diversity of thought in your house, why do you become so rigid with diversity of thought in your society and 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 to me whenever i attempt to to talk to different people you know i have to appreciate you have never said no you've always said yes whenever i have reached out to you you know you could have easily have said no like many people in the american left have said oh he is an open bjp voter he is hindutva xyz hindutva is evil I'm not going to talk to him. And, and, I, and I want to credit you. You have always said yes, because you believe in dialogue. And it is for people like you and I. Sometimes I feel it is us who is fighting for diversity and pluralism. It is not those people who actually claim to fight for diversity and pluralism, because the key requisite, you know, the key prerequisite of diversity is diversity of thought. And if we homogenize this world, I mean, it's a boring place, man. I mean, I want to hang out with people who disagree with me at times. What a boring yes. place you hang out with people. So, man, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And 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 we're going to talk again and again because I love talking to you, man. You're, you're a great guy to start talk and, uh, you know, you know, hash out different ideas with. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, I would love to come on again. So look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Next time, hopefully it's in Washington in person. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's podcast up. So before I wrap it up, once again, I insist you guys buy this book. It will make you think. Believe me, especially, and I say this, if you're a Hindu, read this book. You will get many ideas. He, Especially the premises that Shadi has laid in this book, it will make you think. 
you don't agree with him, it's fine. But it will make you think. And uh, who was that philosopher who had said an unexamined life is a boring life? And I agree with that philosopher. You have to examine your life. And this book makes you do that. So please go and buy this book. The link to buy the book for India is left in the description of the podcast. You can buy the Kindle version or the hardcover, whichever you guys prefer. It's there in the link uh, itself. Or also follow Shadi. Uh, you can also go, Shadi, the wisdom of the crowds is still on, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm still the co-host right. of the the Wisdom of Crowds podcast, which you can find on major podcast platforms. Awesome. So I've left a link to that too, guys. Go and subscribe to his podcast, buy his book, follow him on Twitter. And as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Subscribe to my channel, like this video, leave your comments uh, in the comment section. Either become a member on YouTube or Patreon or Spotify, YouTube, wherever you guys do it. I'll see you guys next time with another interesting discussion. Until then, namaste, take care, bye-bye.